Hi everyone, and welcome to this podcast following the recent webinar series on continuous glucose monitoring, or CGM. My name is Jan, and I'll be your host today for this podcast, which follows our webinar series on CGM, as I just mentioned. The recording of this webinar is available on the ADEA Learning Management System and gave an excellent and practical overview of CGM, its benefits and disadvantages, and some of the research and evidence for the use of this technology. I would like to introduce Amanda Bartlett, who was the presenter of the webinar. Amanda is a registered nurse, certified midwife and credentialed diabetes educator. Initially, she worked in a major obstetric hospital in Sydney in their diabetes clinic, caring for women with pre-existing diabetes and gestational diabetes. She commenced the first insulin pump program at the hospital for women during pregnancy. And in 2009, she moved into private practice where she now provides holistic diabetes education to adults with type one or type two diabetes and to women with gestational diabetes. She also still works as a midwife two days a week. She was a member of ADIPS Executive Council for four years and is currently the chair of ADA Diabetes and Pregnancy Special Interest Group. Amanda is a guest lecturer, a certified insulin pump trainer, and has particular expertise supporting patients who transitioning to insulin pump therapy, stabilisation and continuous glucose monitoring systems. Hello, Amanda, and it's lovely actually to catch up with you again. Uh, how are you today? I'm really well, thanks, Jan. And you? Good, good. Enjoying retirement. <laughs> okay. Um, today we're going to be actually covering some questions that came up for you, Amanda, from the listeners during the webinar. And there was some interest regarding blinded versus unblinded CGM used in patients. So I guess my question to you would be, when do you choose blinded? CGM instead of unblinded CGM for your patients? Well, it really depends upon the individual to a certain degree as to which device they would like to trial and, of course, whether they have a compatible phone. Whilst both Medtronic and AMSL systems work with Android and iPhones, sometimes I find that the operating system people have on their phones is ahead of the app and then we can't link them up. Uh, the visual data available with unblinded or real-time CGMS, I find allows the patient to be more proactive in managing their glycemic control. So a few examples might be a, a patient is struggling with glycemic control and would like to improve levels, I'd always suggest wearing Guardian Connect or Dexcom to allow them to receive alerts and adjust their insulin therapy accordingly. During pregnancy or preconception care, I always suggest unblinded CGMS so women can make use of uh, the alerts to act upon predicted hypo or hyperglycemia. Uh, I find it useful to perform blinded CGMS in patients who are switching from MDI to pump therapy. So, for example, if I was about to put someone on a pump, I often do a week of blinded CGMS to collect some data to compare with afterwards when they're on pump therapy. And it's useful to sort of use as a comparison later during stabilisation. Blinded CGMS sometimes I use uh, to assess fitness to drive and to exclude hypoglycemia and awareness. And I also find it's a great tool for people wearing an insulin pump who aren't really interested in wearing CGMS, but they're not really performing enough glucose readings to, to understand what's going on. So I might have a patient with a particularly low HbA1c that 
I'm wondering, perhaps they're having some overnight hypoglycemia or a very high HbA1c indicating patterns of hyperglycemia. And I find that the blinded CGMS will allow data to be collected and uh, assess their overall settings in the pump. Okay, thanks for that, Amanda. And I guess the other question uh, that was related to data interpretation was, do you have any tips for CGM data interpretation? In other words, what do you look at as part of this process? So I think people always have their own methods of, of looking at data, but how I do it is that I initially look at the 7 to 14 day overlay and I look at the averages to see if there are any trends associated with a particular time of day. For example, repeated episodes of overnight hypoglycemia. And if I find episodes of hypoglycemia, what I then look at um, more carefully is I look at, uh, is it being treated appropriately? So is it causing rebound hyperglycemia or is the person uh, just treating it gently and glucose levels return to normal? normal. What I then do is next starting at midnight, I assess how the blood sugar trends overnight and during the day to assess whether there's any basal insulin adjustments required. Then I look at the meals by time of day. So first of all, I'll look at breakfast, then at lunch, then at dinner across the seven to 14 days to see if I can pick up any trends in a particular meal and adjust the bolus insulin. If a person is wearing pump therapy, I also look um, initially at the frequency of the set changes, so how often they're changing the infusion set and whether they are following the settings in their pump or they're overriding the settings. And if they are overriding their settings, I, I drill down into that data quite carefully on the day by day and look at are they right? So are they overriding their settings, uh, meaning that they give more or less insulin to what the bolus wizard calculates, but they're achieving uh, normal glycemia, so their settings are wrong. Uh, if I'm looking at a Medtronic download, I'd also be looking at the suspends throughout a 24-hour period. And so despite this, this is a very favorable aspect of, of this technology, you want to make sure that the suspends aren't happening uh, at the same time every day because you want the patient to be safe. So if, for example, the pump suspended between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. every single morning, I'd be adjusting that basal insulin to stop that occurring so that if they do uh, have a week without CGMS, they're still safe. So suspend should be a safety feature, not something that occurs at the same time every day. Okay, so can this data then be used to determine insulin carb to carbohydrate ratios or insulin sensitivity factors? Uh, I believe it can, absolutely. I look at the carbohydrate ratios very carefully. It's important first to assess their availability to carbohydrate count. So I'd always touch base with the patient first and make sure they're carbohydrate counting accurately and assess how often in a week any variance occurs. So is there a pattern or is it just a random episode of hyperglycemia associated with eating out? I find it's rare to have the same carbohydrate ratio across a 24-hour period. So I also look at the different meals and the glucose responses to the insulin delivered. Insulin sensitivity factors and carbohydrate ratios are often confused as to which way to alter them. So uh, apologies ahead to those listeners who are certified pump trainers and adjust pump settings frequently, but I thought I'd give a couple of examples. So for example, if pre-meal the person's blood sugar is in target, they've done no exercise, they've calculated their carbohydrates correctly, and they're having repeated episodes of hypoglycemia post-breakfast. So they're, they're receiving too much insulin with breakfast. Their insulin to carb ratio is 10, their carbohydrates consumed are 60, the pump would deliver six units. 
So if I alter the insulin to carb ratio from 10 to 12 grams, the pump will only deliver five units and therefore less insulin and less hypoglycemia. I also look very carefully at correction doses to assess their efficacy. So if a person's blood sugars remain high post-correction, they need more insulin. So for example, I would adjust the sensitivity from 3.8, 3.0 to 2.8 to deliver more insulin. And adversely, if I see multiple episodes of hypoglycemia post-correction, I first check to see that it's not associated with insulin stacking. And what I mean by that is repeated doses of insulin under two hours apart. Many patients are a little bit impatient and they just keep giving numerous correction doses overriding the pump settings without realizing the insulin's effects last for up to four hours. So once I've excluded stacking of insulin, I'd then adjust sensitivity from 3.0 to 3.2. So this is often confused by health by patients and health professionals, but less is more. So the lower the sensitivity or the carbohydrate ratio, the more insulin is received. And I believe it's going to be very important to know how to adjust the carb ratio with the new hybrid closed loop pumps on their way. This will be one of the only settings we'll need to adjust. Thanks for that again, Amanda. And I guess this question is more about your personal experience, but about how long is an initial and follow-up appointment for patients on CGN? Because it is a very complex process to, to get through. Yes, yes, it certainly is. And I, I have the luxury in, in my practice to decide how long I spend. And so I do individualise it a bit. If I've got a very young with it person, 45 minutes to an hour would usually be an, enough. But if I've got quite an elderly person, I often allow uh, at least an hour for the initial appointments and an hour for follow-up with continuous monitoring or pump therapy. Looking at the downloads takes time and clarifications often required over certain results. And if the pump is not downloaded prior to the appointment, this can also be quite time consuming. Thankfully, the new site launched by Medtronic is making it much faster and easier. And I haven't downloaded a tandem pump yet, but I'm reassured by the rep that it's quite easy and it's quite fast. Well, that's great. The next question I want is really, I guess, more a series of questions looking at patients on multiple daily injections using a sensor. Can you calculate boluses from their monitoring readings? And if so, how would a bolus be calculated? And is this calculated using an app or a dosing table? And are there any exceptions to this? Uh, it is possible, but it does take time, clarification and accurate information. So once again, I always assess the uh, person's ability to carbohydrate count accurately and I look at sensor reliability and I clarify other factors such as exercise or stress, illness or whether they were premenstrual first, which all of which will have an effect on glucose levels. The amount of carbohydrate consumed needs recording, insulin doses and glycemic response. So for example, before a meal, their blood sugar is five, they've consumed 45 grams of carbohydrate and they injected three units of Nova Rapid. And if two hours later, their blood sugar was sitting at 7.8, I would say their insulin to carbohydrate ratio is one unit to 15 grams. And if this pattern is repeated over the same meal over a week or so, you can be quite confident that that's an accurate uh, calculation of one unit to 15 grams. But if the blood sugar was uh, 12 post meals, then not enough uh, insulin 
is being delivered and you'd think that perhaps the carb ratio is different. The two algorithms I do tend to use are the Medtronic 500 rule and the Walsh algorithm, which was published in the Journal of Diabetes Science and Technology in 2011. So first I assess their total daily dose of insulin and this includes all their basal and their bolus and I ask them, do you give extra uh, doses of Nova Rapid or Humalog to correct your blood sugars? And if so, how often a day do you do this? And I clarify with the patient, was this a normal week? Were they sick? Did they have a new exercise regime? I then use the Medtronic 500 rule to estimate their insulin to carb ratio, which is 500 divided by the total daily dose. And then sometimes I check this against Walsh and, and their algorithm is a little bit different. You take the patient's current weight of 5.7 and you would divide it by the total dose of insulin. And you ask, is there any uh, exceptions to this? I suppose um, pregnancy would be an exception where often that just doesn't work because the person is so insulin resistant and I would not be able to answer for paediatrics because I don't have any experience in that. Okay, thank you for that. The other intriguing discussion from the webinar was the ability to wear different monitoring devices for different durations of time. For example, the Freestyle Libra sensor can be worn for 14 days, but the Dexacom G5 and Medtronic sensors can only be worn for seven or six days respectively. I just wonder if you could please explain why this is so and the potential benefits of each for us. So the sensors are TGA approved to last a specified amount of time and as such the transit transmitters end uh, the session at the allocated time. But what I find in real life, however, is that educators will see patients restart their continuous monitoring sense session using the same sensor, thus extending the life of the sensor. And whilst they're not really approved for use in this way, many patients will do this to reduce the overall cost. I feel as an educator, it's our role to explain the correct use of sensors, including placement and duration. And I advise that if they are extending the life of the sensor, it does have the potential to drop out a little more and perhaps become inaccurate, reinforcing the requirement to treat to capillary glucose, not interstitial glucose. It should also be noted that the only device uh, that is approved for pregnancy by the TGA is the Enlight sensor from Medtronic. In clinical practice, educators will come across all three being used, but they need to refer to their local policies and guidance. Personally, I find the Libre is not really accurate enough for pregnancy where such tight glycemic control is required. Thank you for those comments. I just wonder then how common are continuous glucose monitoring systems in preconception and pregnancy for women with type 1 or type 2 diabetes? I think I'm lucky in that I work in quite a, an affluent part of Australia and I do see and use the systems a great deal in women with type 1 diabetes and occasionally in women with type 2. I find continuous monitoring is really useful to tighten uh, glycemic control preconception, avoiding the consequences of hyperglycemia to the developing fetus at conception, whilst also reducing the risk of hypoglycemia in the mother due to the predictive alerts that the woman receives. During pregnancy, women often have altered symptoms around hypoglycemia with a degree of impairment, and I find the CGMS invaluable to tighten glycemic control and often offer the woman added confidence, in particular during periods of insulin sensitivity when the insulin requirements may reduce quite substantially. And I had an interesting case recently where I performed um, continuous monitoring for a woman with type 2 diabetes who had very pronounced symptoms of hypoglycemia with metformin use and uh, an episode of unconscious hypoglycemia. 
Uh, and a week of continuous monitoring by a Guardian Connect correlated her symptoms and she actually invested in a system which allowed her to feel much more secure caring for her toddler and continuing the medication. Most of the women I care for realise that CGMS is a luxury and are hopeful that it will become subsidised in the future, enabling access for all people with diabetes. And finally, Amanda, CGM is, is quite life-changing. And I guess my question to you is, do you have concerns about the impact on young adults who have used and become used to CGM, who turn 21 and are no longer eligible for CGM under NDSS? Have you had any experience with this particular group of patients? Uh, I don't. I haven't had any experience with these patients, Jan, but I do have major concerns about young adults and how they transition to paying for CGMS once it's no longer subsidised. I think with any new technology, initially you're paying for the research and development, and as years go by, the technology generally does become more affordable. Medtronic um, does offer an excellent option of subscribing to continuous monitoring across 12 months, which does make it much, much cheaper for the patients. Uh, and I find that they really do put their patients first ahead of profit. And there are also numerous groups campaigning for free continuous monitoring for all. So the Danny Foundation have a web page you can subscribe to campaigning for free CGMS for all patients with type 1. And following the, uh, the publication of the concept trial, there is a move to campaign for subsidised continuous monitoring during pregnancy. So interesting times ahead, I think. Well, thank you yes, very much. Yes. <laughs> so thank you very much for your time today, Amanda. And I guess that's actually all the questions that have come through following the webinar. But I wonder if before we end the conversation, if you had three take home messages for our listeners um, regarding CGM in general. Educate yourself as best you can through webinars, conferences, education days offered by the medical companies and your place of work and ADEA. I would suggest to be flexible in your practice and offer CGMS more often to different types of patients and all ages of patients. And finally, offer close support to those wearing it uh, initially and set realistic goals on interpreting their data. Amanda, thank you so much again for your time today. It really has been great to talk to you again. And I'm sure that the, both the webinar and this podcast have inspired our listeners to start thinking about working towards expanding their skills in this area. And you've definitely given them some insights into the more intricate aspects of CGM. So thank you again. And thank you to the members for taking the time to listen to this podcast. If you haven't already done so, please take the time and head to the ADA Learning Management System to watch the recording of the webinar series presented by Amanda. So until next time, thank you and goodbye.